Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. James Salter, who died on June 19, 2015, at the age of 90, was what is often called a writer's writer. Not very well known to the public, he was known as one of America's greatest literary stylists. Born James Arnold Horowitz, Salter went to West Point and later served as a pilot in the Korean War before becoming a novelist, short story writer, essayist, filmmaker, and screenwriter. Among his film credits were Sidney Lumet's The Appointment and Downhill Racer, starring Robert Redford. On October 7, 1997, James Salter came to the KPFA studios and spoke with Richard A. Lupoff and me about his memoir, Burning the Days, which discussed his life as both a pilot and a writer. This book, it's not quite a memoir because you leave out a tremendous amount of information. We don't know how many times you've been married. We don't know how many children you have. In fact, we don't even know your original last name. How deliberate is this? It is deliberate. A memoir, to begin with, only means something that is written from uh, uh, the writer's personal knowledge or experience. It does not necessarily mean complete autobiography. I ransacked everything I knew to write the book and everything I thought would be interesting. Uh, as for marriage, I mean, you mentioned marriage. I had written about that extensively in light years, although that's not autobiographical book, but... I had done with the subject. I wasn't interested in writing it anymore. Certain other things, whatever they might be, uh, I left out because they didn't seem urgent to me. I wanted to put in there everything that I thought was vital in my life and would be interesting to read. And further, I wanted to write the kind of book that I like to read, so I wanted it to read like a novel. And not particularly. I mean, uh, if it's biographical information that the reader wants, they're just going to have to wait till I die and, <laughs> somebody, and maybe later on. Who knows? I doubt it. The first half of the book, or in fact, more than the first half of the book, deals with your first career. Uh, I think you quote someone saying there are no, no second chances in life, no second lives. You have had two very, very distinct lives. The first as a pilot, and the second as a writer. You devote more time to the pilot end of it than you do to the writing end. Why is that? That is the question. I suppose I wanted you to see these things, the reader to see these things. And as for the writing part, it seemed to me that the books themselves, the other books, were somehow evidence of that. Now, there are books. I mean, Thomas Mann wrote an entire book on how he came to write. I think it was Faust, Dr. Faustus. Well, that was Thomas Mann. I don't think I'm justified in, uh, in spending 100 pages on how I struggled with this particular work or not. I mean, they are um, 
let us say they're relatively little known in any case, so I didn't do it. And anyway, writing and all the attendant problems, that is to say, earning money, sitting there looking at a blank sheet or whatever, the, all these classical you know, pictures one has of writing didn't seem to me uh, to be interesting enough, so I left a lot of that out, that's all. The early sections of your book, Burning the Days, deal with a fairly privileged, not ultra-rich, uh, blue blood, but a um, very comfortable lifestyle in uh, New York and the metropolitan Northeast in the uh, 1930s. I will say that Burning the Days is very, very evocative of a certain era and a certain milieu. I wonder how you feel about it from the perspective of 1997. Were you describing life on, on Mars? Is it that alien or does that somehow survive? I mean, the city is essentially unchanged in many ways. I haven't lived in New York since I was 16 years old actually, although I've been back there many times. I still think of myself as a New Yorker, naturally. And when I go there, I feel that I'm, uh, yes, this is my place. This is home. Well, well one thing about New York that is, um, that is important is the architecture doesn't change. I mean, the Empire State Building was there when I was a kid. All the apartment houses on Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue, all these things stay. Well, they tear down something now and then. The streets, of course, are immutable. So, I mean, there is your city, just as it was when you were a kid. Now, it is true that policemen, when I was a boy, all knew how to tie a bow tie. You know, you could walk up to a cop and say, would you help me? I don't think they do that now. And it was the capital then, in many ways, and I mean, it remains that. I don't say that out of chauvinism. It's unlike Europe, where the capital is always the political capital. The cultural and uh, economic capital is always the same. London, Paris, Rome, and so, well, Rome is not exactly. New York is quite different, has but very little political influence other than in New York State. But in every other way, it's the capital of the country. You describe attending West Point almost by a fluke, that is your enrollment. You were not the only Jew at West Point, but there were very, very few at the time. What impact did that have on your life and your treatment as a cadet? I didn't detect any. Uh, I I'm sure there was some. I mean, naturally, people have their prejudices. West Point at that time was, was certainly quite a different school than it is now in terms of who the cadets were. Uh, there were no black cadets. Well, there might have been two or three black cadets when uh, I was there. The school was mostly, it seemed to be, rural, really, rather than city kids. You know, all the kids from Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, such states seem to come from small towns, is my impression. I mean, I don't know what the statistics would be. Jewish cadets, there might have been uh, two dozen, maybe less, something like that. The core uh, at that time was must have been 4,000, must have been 4,000 cadets. 1942 to 1945. Unquestionably, there are cadets with uh, prejudices, but personally, no, I never had to fight anybody behind the barracks. Later on in the Air Force, uh, I was on active duty for 12 years and then in the reserve for another six, as a matter of fact, and the guard. Again, the same thing happened. There might have been some prejudice, but I never faced it overtly. You heard occasional remarks, but I mean, but... Uh, you really can't call that, you know, anything significant. 
Your description of the cadet lifestyle, it seems to me that the West Point lifestyle is is one of, of degradation and humiliation of the plebes. If you survive that, you get to turn around and inflict the same upon a new generation of plebes. Is this accurate? And if it is, what's good about it? Well, it's accurate. I don't know what's good about it. I mean, they've made all efforts to diminish, to ameliorate, to modify that uh, plebeer and to make it more, what shall I say, uh, instructive and useful and uh, humane and so forth and so on. The question is too large for me to <laughs> grapple with. I mean, should you be allowed to hit your kid if he does something, if he starts to run across the street in traffic? Should you be obliged to sit him down and say, now let me explain something to you. Cars are going very fast here and you shouldn't do that and you might possibly be hurt. Or is it, uh, are you permitted to uh, give him a slap and say, don't ever do that again and here's why and don't forget this. Well, the world has changed, right? You can't do the latter now. You must do the former. West Point has changed too. I'm I'm unable to say whether it's you know for better or worse. Some things, unquestionably, better. There were things that were really vile, but they've been eliminated, and, and much more has gone with it. I go there occasionally. I I've probably been to West Point two or three times in the last decade for one reason or another, and of course it's quite, you can see visibly it's quite a different school. The core is quite different. The way they do things is different. And the only thing that hasn't changed is the color of the uniforms. <laughs> you wound up as a pilot first in Korea and later, I guess, uh, just in the Air Force with people such as Gus Grissom and Astronaut White. They were written about in a book called The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. Was that an accurate portrayal of the pilot's life? I haven't read it recently enough to, you know, be precise about that. But in general, yes. Wolf wrote a very accurate book. Pilots liked it. They uh, respected it. And I, I mean, I respect him as both a writer and a journalist. So I would say, yes, pretty accurate. You're talking about a somewhat unelevated life, very practical in its outlook and congenial, but uh, with undertones of competition and so forth, top dogism. What about the politics? Now, I know that World War II and Korea, it was a different era. Politics didn't intrude. I would guess if you were in the military, you just went for it and didn't think about it. Or did you? There used to be a tradition. I'm going back to West Point again. There used to be a tradition, believe it or not, where officers did not vote. That's a tradition. It wasn't a regulation. The idea being you're apolitical. You are there to serve your country and the president and uh, – so there's no point in getting involved in politics. Well, now we have Alexander Haig, for instance. Well, this is already a generation back, but quite different. He seems to be a political figure. He is a political figure. In fact, he is also a West Pointer. So I presume that it's going by the board. When Korea came, I was a kid, really. I was 24, 25 years old. No, I don't even think I read the New York Times then. I don't recall exactly. But we were flying. We were f uh, flyers. We had our own world. Dick Lupoff. You describe your experiences uh, as a pilot. Uh, you flew F-86 Sabres. 
At the time, we had our standard wartime jingoistic propaganda, which said that the F-86 was a superior plane and the uh, the MiG-15 was, was a piece of tin which we could knock out of the sky with a slingshot. As you describe it in Burning the Days, the experience was rather different from that. Would you give us a rundown of these two aircraft, the F-86 and the MiG-15, as you perceived them as a person who lived and died by the performance of those aircraft? The P-51 and, uh, and the P-47, big fighters in uh, World War II, were probably no better or not even as good as the FW-190. We acknowledge that the German airplanes were at least as good as ours. Japanese, not as good. The Russians, we naturally thought of as of people living in the mud who could hardly manufacture a, a wristwatch, much less an airplane. The Korean Peninsula is like Florida. It's a long finger sticking down toward Japan from China between the Yellow and the uh, Japan Sea. When the war stabilized there about midway across after a number of actions, the air belonged to the Americans. Well, it was to the UN forces, but the United States was essentially UN forces. The air belonged to us, all the fighter bombers, going up there were unimpeded, unattacked. The reconnaissance planes, the B-29s, and so forth. And then somewhere after about, oh, a number of months, I don't remember the exact time, the first MiG-15s appeared. These were Russian planes flown by Russian pilots. In fact, they were Soviet air regiments that had come over, were stationed right across the border in China and began to contest for control of the air. Now, that was a big 200-mile stretch of completely empty sea of air. When they first appeared, immediately the situation changed. The balance of things changed. They began shooting down, harassing the slower and older models of United States planes, F-80s and even P-51s, and they immediately summoned F-86 units which was the newest plane we had, the best fighter we had. Uh, pardon me. Maybe we should, we should back up. The P-51 was a propeller-driven propeller World War II. But still in operation yes. in Korea. Uh, the F-80 was, was a jet, but it was a very early, fairly crude the, model. The, well, not crude, but the very first of the operational mm -hmm. jet aircraft, the one in which Richard Bong got killed, as a matter of fact. And so... These leftovers from World War II, the P-51, and the first of the jets, the F-80s, were the first airplanes we had over in Korea. When the MiGs appeared, uh, we immediately knew things had changed and sent over the best airplanes we had in small numbers. We didn't have many F-86s. And the fourth fighter wing went over there. Then a guy named Bruce Hinton, who was the squadron commander there, he shot down the first MiG in Korea, and he wrote a letter of assessment on their performance back. It was a, naturally a secret uh, document, and we read it avidly, and in it he described their performance and said it was pretty good. It was about as good as ours, as a matter of fact, as the F-86. So when I got over there as a, a replacement, perhaps a year after this letter appeared, we encountered MiGs, yes, their ceiling was higher. They could fly a little bit higher, maybe a 48 or 49,000 feet as against 45 or 46 for the F-86. Oh, okay, to, again, yes. to translate that into more familiar language, 
5,000 feet, you're saying they could fly about a mile higher. This, well, this is significant. Well, no, not really. They can fly a few thousand feet higher, but the significance of it is if they fly at that altitude, they are perfectly safe. Nobody can touch them. There were no missiles in those days. You fought with uh, machine guns or, in their case, uh, rapid-firing cannon. So their advantage was that they could come in, look everything over, and if they liked the situation, come down and fight. And if they didn't like it, go right back to China and land. Well, whereas you couldn't do that. You couldn't touch them. Your top ceiling was, as I say, 46,000 perhaps. Performance was, oh, relatively the same. The MiG had a slight advantage at altitude. Performance relatively the same till you got down lower, maybe fifteen or 20,000 feet altitude. From then on down, the 86 had a slight advantage in turning capability. Very important in those days since uh, these were dogfights. I know the word seems uh, anachronistic now, but these were fights where you attempted to get behind the other airplane, which is how you shot him down. Your experience over there, though, you describe the uh, the fights that went on, and you say that the kill ratio was very, very favorable to our side for a reason other than the technology of the aircraft. Would, would you go into that? Well, I there, found that fascinating. In the well, book. there are probably two. There are a number of reasons, but I'd say two very significant ones. Three. One, we had machine guns, very rapid firing. Once you actually hit somebody, it would pour in. It was like having a hose, a garden hose. They had slower firing cannon. They fired about, I forget now, probably once every uh, three seconds or something, two seconds, a shell would come out, probably designed so the plane would be suitable for air-to-ground work against tanks and so forth, as well as air-to-air work. And consequently, it was a little more difficult for them to get a fatal burst in. If they hit you, it was bad, but it was harder for them to hit you. That was one thing. Secondly, their system was different than ours of uh, sending their units in. They sent a complete regiment in, fresh and untried, with maybe the exception of a few veterans who happened to come to advise them or something, but a complete regiment in to stay there for perhaps four or five months and fight. So for the first two or three months, they knew nothing. They were perfectly green. And their experience came in a wave. They all began to learn at the same time. And by the time they left, oh, five months later, they were terrific, but they went home immediately. Our situation was different. We kept the same unit in place and put replacement pilots in. So there were always pilots who had flown 90 missions, some would have flown 60, some would have flown 40, and then these kids coming in who were a little frightened who hadn't flown any. Consequently, the experience level was always at a, you know, let's say, a median. Could you describe for us your feeling, your personal feeling as a as a very young man sitting in that cockpit the first time you went into combat against a MiG? Yeah, well, I was frightened. I mean, uh, I dare say even the aces were a little nervous. But you didn't cut and run. <clears throat> it's very difficult to cut and run. First of all, when you started out, you were probably a wingman. That's the way you begin to learn a little bit. The wingman, I should explain, two ship and fighters, two ships always fly together, the leader and the wingman. The wingman's job is 
elemental, I mean elementary, I should say. It is to stay with the leader and to look around and, uh, if necessary, sometimes to support him with fire. The leader's job is to go about his business and find the enemy. Somebody has to be looking in back of him to make sure he's, they don't, somebody doesn't sneak up on him. And that's the wingman who does that. So in the beginning, uh, you merely have a subordinate and auxiliary position in the fight. And there's no possibility of running away. You, re you cannot say to the leader, listen, I, I think I'm going to go the other way here <laughs> or, or, or some such thing. I mean, you're with them and you have to stay with them all the way. So you may be frightened. You're probably nervous as hell. But uh, you stay with them. Later on, you get to be the leader yourself when you're experienced. And there, I would say, there are varying degrees of aggressiveness, naturally. There are pilots who are perhaps more interested in their own safety than they are in, uh, you know, in finding the enemy. And, of course, there are extremely aggressive and tough pilots who are out looking for the enemy all the time. You know, it, uh, I would say it's not much different than, than what you know about life. Richard Walensky. James Salter, your book, Burning the Days, takes us from your life as a pilot into your life as a writer. But you seem to glide over the transition. Was there a real transition when your career with the Air Force as a pilot ended and you began to return into civilian life and specifically an intellectual life, which is quite different, I would assume, than your life as a pilot? As pilots, we did not discuss literature. It was the most difficult thing I ever did in my life, actually, to make that change. But I had written a book while I was an officer, and it had been published under a pseudonym. I did that initially because you were not allowed at the time to uh, have anything published that had not been approved by the Air Force, by headquarters. That was one reason. And of course, another reason was I didn't want to reveal myself as being a writer, which would be a, um, a very curious thing to be as a career officer and a pilot. I mean, those such figures I were looked at with some suspicion and disdain, I would say. So rather than uh, cripple myself, I wrote the first novel as uh, not exactly a test, but I did it on the side, let us put it that way. When it was successful, well, I describe this in the book. A friend of mine told me one day that he was resigning. He was a regular officer. I knew him quite well. I thought, what an astonishing thing to decide to do. Well, perhaps I might do the same thing. And if I did, I would leave all this behind. I would henceforth try to make my way as a writer. Is that possible? Well, I struggled with that for a long time and uh, finally decided, yes, I was finished with what had gone before, I was going to become a writer. It was an immensely difficult decision. I wept when I turned in my resignation. I, I can remember it as if it were uh, yesterday. I was leaving not only 12 years of flying duty, but uh, three years of school, all the mature friends that I had, the whole life, everything that had gone before I was leaving behind. I say this in the book, as a matter of fact, that very night, I had to talk to somebody. I was so upset. I called up my former, this was in Washington, I called up my former wing commander, a guy named John Brooks, and uh, he said, why, how are you? Why don't you come over and have dinner with us? And uh, he lived in Arlington. I went over, 
and had dinner, and he said, what are you up to? And I said, I had resigned my commission. And he said, you idiot. And of course, I knew exactly what he meant. He was talking about the security of the Air Force career. He was actually talking about my potential in it, I believe. And uh, he'd been my commander for three years. I was an operations officer in one of his squadrons. I knew just what he meant. Yes, it was terribly difficult. That was only the beginning of the difficulty, of course. To become a writer then was beginning anew, completely anew. Well, also, um, you suddenly were able to be yourself. That part of you that you, I assume you compartmentalize, the writer, the intellectual, was able to come out. Two questions. First, how did you deal with reading matter? I mean, when you were in the Air Force, did you suddenly pull out, when everybody was pulling out their manuals, you suddenly pull out Thomas Mann or Paul Bowles? That was the first question. <laughs> the second is, when you were out and you became involved in... Hollywood and screenwriting and came across the blacklist. How did that feel to you? The second question, I mean, the blacklist was long before me. I knew very little about it. Well, I knew about it, of course, McCarthy and all that, but it had passed. It was an historic thing. I didn't pay much attention to it. I never met any of those writers. I guess I met one, but he wasn't one of the original Hollywood 10. He was an English writer named John Collier. Well, actually, he was a pure Marxist and only proved it by living like an English aristocrat. A really a terribly charming, terribly talented man. He was the only such figure I knew. And uh, I knew him when uh, he was living in France. I now realize, I didn't realize it at the time, uh, at his dinner table on the weekends were always prominent, well, leftists or communists, as a matter of fact, Marxists from French or English uh, political circles. As for what I read, well, I didn't read much when I was, um, I read more actually at West Point than I did when I was uh, in the service. I, oddly enough, I had a little more time and I was close to the library there. And I had one classmate, Ralph Ellis, later shot down and killed in Korea, who was, I simply did not understand. He had read everything, and he used to occasionally recommend books for me to read. And for instance, I can remember clearly, he said to me one day, have you ever read any Ivy Compton Burnett? I said, well, now that's a name I mean. I think even your literary uh, listeners are going to say, scratch their heads. But in, <laughs> in any case, I said no. And he sent me to the library to uh, get a book or two of hers. I thought she was wonderful. However, in the service, there was very little time for that. I didn't do much of that. And I really did all my reading uh, afterwards. Dick Lupoff. You published several successful novels or somewhat successful novels and then moved on to Hollywood. And the impression that I got from reading Burning the Days is that your experience with Hollywood was, uh, how shall I put it, not entirely happy and fulfilling. I didn't move to Hollywood. I lived in New York. I wrote mostly in New York and in Europe part of the time. I never lived in Los Angeles. And more's the pity. I mean, it must have been wonderful out there, but uh, I never invited to, and it was not possible for other reasons. Pardon me. Now, now please fill us in also as to what years we're, we're discussing. Well, I, I began writing. Uh, I wrote a first script probably um, maybe 1960. 
three or some year like that. But before that, I'd been interested in films. I had a normal young man's interest in films. I met a fellow named Lane Slate, lived down the road in Piermont, wonderful guy who worked for CBS. He knew much more about movies than I did, and we made some uh, a number of documentaries together, the first of which, a film called Team, 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 is 12 minutes long, won the first prize at Venice the following year in documentaries. I remember we were surprised and astonished, but we took it as only our due. We knew we were terribly talented. We went on and made uh, a number of other documentaries, many of them for PBS, for the New York PBS station. And following that, uh, or during that, I was asked by somebody to write a, a feature script, which I did. It was, it was never produced. It was impecunious producers who is, were as youthful and inexperienced as I was. Through them, through that script, I happened to meet Robert Redford, who'd read it, and that really began my career. I wrote a film for him. But I should say one other thing. Although the interest in films today is probably is at least as great or greater than it has ever been, it was great in 1963 and enlivened also by the appearance in America of all these European directors and films, which we had never, I mean, uh, relatively little distribution of them had been made in America before that. So we were seeing these first, what can I say, eye-opening works by uh, Truffaut and Godard and uh, Bertolucci and Fellini and uh, Richardson and uh, all these European directors making a different sort of film on a different level, really, uh, of filmmaking than Hollywood had done although that's all an era long past, it was very stimulating at the time. That was one of the enticements, one of the things that uh, attracted me to film. I did not go in as, uh, uh, you know, as a cynical person. I went in uh, as everyone else does, saying, I'd like to do this, <laughs> and, uh, and further uh, one gets paid. James Salter, it's clear reading your book that one can make a great living and never have anything produced. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a, that is a truism in, in California now, right? You hear it all the time. You're in great shape until they make your film. I mean, you can sell three or four scripts and keep getting more and more money and never have anything made. Well, it wasn't quite that true at the time, but you get paid something even though the film is not made. Had you ever considered uh, turning any of your own books into films? No. I felt myself so pure, having written the first book, The Hunters, that uh, when I was told by my agent that there was um, a director, a producer, who simply had to make the movie, I was not inclined to uh, to sell it. I thought this would be a really... A, I didn't want to soil myself. The, the work was too noble for that, I felt. <laughs> but... Very fortunately, they prevailed on me, my two agents, and said, really, you should think this over. If you're thinking of becoming a writer, this has nothing to do with your book, per se, which has its own life and entity, and they're going to pay you enough money so that probably you'll be able to support yourself for three and four years, which is exactly what happened. Uh, for the rights to the hunters, I was paid $60,000. And uh, they arranged it so I would get a quarter of it each year for four years. 
And that money actually enabled me to become a writer. Without that, I don't know what would have happened. So it becomes, in a sense, a stipend for you to do your own art. Yes, I feel that the movies are right. And it were my patron in this case. Yeah. Was The Hunters ever filmed? Yes, it was. The, the producer who wanted, who insisted, who had to make it was Richard Powell, who'd been an actor and later became a director and producer. He also directed it, I believe. I only saw it once. I, I disapproved of it. It seemed to me to be, I mean, they changed it radically. Not to describe the book at length, but it's a, it's a book about the true and untrue, so to speak, in combat, in the war. It came from my own experiences in Korea. And uh, naturally, in the film version, it is about a man who falls in love with his wingman's wife and this <laughs> and that. And, uh, you know, it was a very cardboard. Uh, Since we have reverted for the moment to your uh, Air Force experience in Korea, after Korea, uh, you were assigned to Europe. You were then flying, I believe, F-100 Super Sabres. This was during the Cold War. This was not combat duty, but it was something like it. It must have been very peculiar. There were wings there then, Air Force wings, and there are there now. You went there for three or four year, years. You lived a whole life there. The only thing that was exciting during that period of time was the Hungarian uprising took place, I think, in 1956. Everybody was put on alert and... Uh, we were pulled back from, we happened to be at Gunnery at the time and over in France, and we were immediately pulled back to uh, stand alert, which means, you know, you're standing by your planes to take off in five minutes, fully armed and so forth. But that was the only real excitement. The rest of it was entirely operational flying, wonderful flying, really, but uh, nothing, nothing terribly perilous. You never had any close encounters with uh, Soviet aircraft coming from the other side? No, I never saw one. Never saw I one. mean, you saw their contrails occasionally across the border. You know, high up in the air, they leave these um, white smoke paths. But aside from that, I never mm -hmm. saw one. Which border was this? I suppose the border between East and West Germany and was probably, I'm just making a guess, but maybe 70 or 80 miles from the East German border. You had combat experience. You had been through a real war. You were a more mature man. Did you, at this time, have any feelings about what you were doing there and what the world was all about? Or were you still just a guy doing his job? You mustn't make it sound like Eichmann or anything. I mean, we were, yeah, we were pilots. The, uh, the culture, the ethic is... You're flying operational planes in an operational unit. No, uh, I would say that we looked forward to fighting the Soviet planes if it ever came to that. But there was no, nobody had any, uh, not the slightest desire for war to break out. That would be, uh, I think that would be absurd. Uh, everybody knew that any, any conflict between the Soviet, the then Soviets, and the United States or Eastern, uh, Western Europe would simply be a horrendous, would be a catastrophe. But, uh, but you're only a small portion of all that. You're not making any decisions. You're, you have your airplane and your unit and uh, you have to be ready to go. Politically, there was no political element involved at all. I never heard any discussion of that. Later, going over as, as a reserve with 
pilots who were never regular officers to begin with and who were in the reserve essentially to continue flying and to earn money on the weekends and so forth. Yes, I was recalled and went to Europe again at the Berlin crisis with one of those units. And there you occasionally heard pilots saying, well, I don't want to go over with bombs, go over to Budapest or something. And the old guys would say to them, yeah, well, well what do you think you're here for? And there'd be a little discussion of it. But uh, political is the wrong word. I never heard myself any such level of uh, talk or feeling. James Salter, when you were a pilot, did you ever see a UFO? No, I never did. But I know that um, I know that an eminent uh, Air Force pilot, a guy I know and respect and who was an ace and all that, I think it was Robin Olds, but I may be wrong. Maybe it was George Simler. I, I'm just not sure. But one of those guys, I believe, testified that he saw one once. That's all I know about it. I think it has been discredited. You see occasionally in the air and sometimes on the ground things which seem inexplicable to you. And I have seen such things, but I'm not calling them UFOs. Normally, often they turn out to be some kind of reflection, either in your windshield or out of a mirror, or one thing or another that you simply could not grasp at the time. But that has actually happened to me in rooms as well, where you see something, sure. a light or uh, something reflected oddly, that you cannot quite fathom how it could be there. And even trying to trace it back, you have difficulty in seeing what it is. So I would attribute most of those sightings either to um, a certain, what can I say, tendency to see such things on the part of untrained people and on the part of aviators themselves, uh, something that they simply were uh, not able to fully explain. If you had your choice between choosing the literary life or choosing the life of a pilot, which would you choose? Well, I mean, I made my choice. I suppose these years in the Air Force, well, they certainly were no, no worse than uh, Tennessee Williams' uh, eight years in the shoe store, and in fact, I think better uh, in many respects. I would perhaps be a better writer if I had uh, not uh, been a pilot, but I don't know. I'm unable to say that. You know, it's impossible to see oneself, so to speak, entire. Well, James Salter, you've been a screenwriter. You've written novels. Now you've written recollections. What next? Well, I'm teaching at the moment. I'm teaching at Williams. Uh, it's only for a semester. I have a novel that I've been working on, and I'd like to, I hope to get back to it this winter. You've been listening to a 1997 interview with novelist and screenwriter James Salter, who died in June 2015 at the age of 90. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Following the publication of the memoir, Burning the Days, while he published several different works of fiction and nonfiction, he was not to write another novel until the well-reviewed All That Is in 2013, a book that Malcolm James wrote in the New York Times was, quote, strikingly original, vigorous proof that this literary lion is still very much on the prowl. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. 
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.